Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends, our text for today is taken from our gospel lesson from the second chapter of St. John with an emphasis on these words. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is our text, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. A Bordeaux vintage, a cut of Kobe beef, a nice hunk of Normandy cheese, Swiss chocolate, Colombian coffee, Maine lobster, New York pizza, Chicago hot dogs, Texas barbecue. Sorry, I'm salivating and I forgot where I was going with this. No, just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Some things are so good that you just have to try them for yourself before you get it. Do you know what I mean? It's one thing to read about a life-changing dish or to hear about the perfect meal, but it's entirely another thing to taste for yourself and to see what all the commotion is about. I'm sure that each and every one of you could add your own special items to that list that I just gave. Sometimes it's all about tasting for yourself and discerning what it is that is truly exceptional, truly special to you. What is the most delicious meal that you've ever had? Can you picture it? What makes it so unique, so special? Sometimes it's the added care and technique that goes into the food's preparation. Sometimes it's the decades or even centuries of experience by a family tweaking and perfecting this old, old recipe. Sometimes it may be the story, the mythology even, which is attached to the object in question. And still sometimes it just boils down to good old-fashioned personal taste, the reason that we cling to what we call the comfort foods. But in today's gospel, we hear the account of Jesus' very first miracle, and it might be kind of surprising to some of us when we consider that this was the very first. This is how he introduces himself in the gospel of John. He turns water into wine at the wedding at Cana. This is an act which sort of sets itself apart from all of the other miracles that would follow it, not just for being kind of unique in its delivery, but also for the fact that to the untrained ear, you might be tempted to think it sounds kind of trivial by comparison, at the very least at its face value. And so this morning, let's take a moment to dig in to the text surrounding the wedding at Cana, and I hope you'll pardon that pun. First, it's worth noting that the details surrounding the event itself are actually pretty sparse. We don't know Jesus' relation to the bride and groom, nor for that matter do we even know who they are. Some scholars throughout the centuries have hypothesized that because Jesus and his disciples were present at this wedding together, that it may have been the wedding of Simon Peter. Because, as you might know, he's the only of the disciples we know for certain was married. Or perhaps some scholars have supposed that it's even the gospel writer, 
John himself, explaining the fact that we don't see this account in the other three gospel narratives. But, of course, this is all just speculation. The word of the Lord is not meant to keep the people in the dark, so the one thing that we can discern from these details is that, well, they're not super important. John wants us to focus in on something greater. Secondly, it's also not clear for that matter that besides Jesus, the central figure that we see in this particular story, despite only being referenced twice in the entirety of the Gospel of John, is none other than St. Mary. Why was she in the position to direct the servants? Did she have some kind of side hustle as a wedding coordinator that we don't know about? Well, no. Could this wedding maybe have been a family affair? Whatever the circumstances, at some point during the feast, the wine ran out. And it was Mary, in particular, who approached Jesus with this news. For it would have spelt a social catastrophe for the newly married couple for the drinks to run out right in the middle of their big celebration. And so Mary, knowing who her son Jesus truly was, she approached him to ask for help. They have no wine, she pleaded with him in a way that only a mother really can. But here Jesus' response to her is kind of perplexing. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, Let's break this down into the two parts. First, this, this title that Jesus attaches to Mary, woman. It's rather significant in the context of his very first miracle in sort of a surprising way. No, Jesus was not being rude to his poor dear mom. This title instead was meant to hearken the hearer back to that very first woman. All the way back to Eve, who in the Garden of Eden was betrothed, married to the very first man, Adam who was to care for her and provide for her in a perfect union between her, her husband, and their God. A union which, after the dawn of creation, was shattered by their sinful act of disobedience. And now, in John's Gospel, as Jesus comes, at his great epiphany, the revealing of his salvation... He provides in headship as Adam once did over a new creation. He presides as the perfect Adam. And so, by extension, this makes Mary the new Eve, for she is the woman by whom this long-standing promise of Eden is at last delivered. So, by these subtle cues... The gospel writer, St. John, is signaling that this, Jesus' first miracle, is the start, the heralding of a new creation. It is the beginning of his acts which would restore the perfect union of God and man by the virtue and work that he himself would accomplish. But, as he says, the second part of this statement that's kind of flummoxing to us, This wedding feast was not yet the feast to come after all these things had been revealed and delivered. 
So what does Jesus do? He takes the opportunity to remind Mary and to show his disciples that his hour has not yet come. My glory, he says, has not been revealed. My day is still forthcoming. So hearing this, still Mary, the new woman, she responds in a way that that first woman did not. Speaking to the servants, she gave them one simple command. She said, do whatever he tells you. This is a statement of blind her son would do. But it was a statement of faith which gave answer to the doubt that Eve expressed in the garden. And so at long last in the story, we come to the moment. We come to the miracle. Jesus commands that six 30-gallon jars meant for ritual cleansing be filled with water. And then, by means which are not disclosed by St. John, he turns that water into wine for the feast. The scriptures then tell us that this wine was drawn out and it was brought to the master of ceremonies to taste. And then, when he tasted it, he summoned the groom because he didn't know where the wine had come from, and he gave the quote, which all of you could probably recite from memory from this story. He said, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then when the people have drunk freely, then they serve the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus, it seems, was not content merely to conjure up just any old wine, but the very best wine that the wedding guests that day in Cana would ever taste. And so back to our original thought, uh, the question that I presented to you before, what was it about this wine? What was it that made it so special? Well, here again, St. John doesn't give us a whole lot of detail. What vintage exactly was it that we're talking about here? Did Jesus make a robust pour to deep chocolatey Moreau? Something lighter and fruitier like a Pinot Grigio? We don't know. Only that upon tasting, the host exclaimed over it that this was the good stuff. It wasn't the wine itself that made it so special. It was he who prepared it. And I imagine that the guests upon tasting were in agreement. For the very last line that John leaves us with in this story says that this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. This is how he showed who he was. And upon witnessing this thing, he concludes, his disciples believed in him. Do you see what happened here? This wine wasn't just good. It was so good that the people who tasted it believed in God. That was a joke. But kidding aside, I, I find it interesting that this, of all things, was Jesus' first miracle. The glory of the Lord was first manifest in the sight of the people, not in the calming of the storm, not in the healing of the sick, not even in raising the dead, but rather in what could only and most succinctly be described as an act of table fellowship. Think about that. 
Because this significantly informs the Christian understanding of God and our relationship to him. Think back for a moment uh, to Eden again really quick. It had been now almost 4,000 years, give or take, since God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. It had been almost 4,000 years since he spoke to his children face to face and walked with them in the cool of the day. And now Jesus, God in flesh, comes to his people once more face to face and the very first act which he chooses to reveal his godhood to the disciples is what? He feasts with them. He eats with them. He drinks with them. He celebrates with them. He comes to them in his very flesh to share in this special meal and then when they run dry... He himself quenches them of their thirst by his gracious providence. Friends, I tell you now that the Christian church today is privileged to share in this same fellowship. For it is the same Jesus Christ who comes to us. It is the same Jesus Christ who calls us to his table who satisfies the hunger and thirst of his church on earth. But the food that he gives is not meat or grain. It's not that delicious slice of New York pizza. No, for true food, Jesus offers up his very flesh, beaten and pierced for our transgression upon Calvary's cross. And for drink? No, not Bordeaux, not a glass of Pinot Gris, Jesus gives for his vintage the very blood which he shed for our forgiveness, life, and salvation. By these means, our Lord and Savior satisfies us not just in our bellies for this day, but he makes true and full satisfaction which endures unto life everlasting. By the Holy Eucharist, His manifest glory is revealed to you and me in this present age. And yet, the Bible says, this is not all. Like those truly great meals that you may remember throughout your life, this is but the first course. This is the appetizers. This is a foretaste of the feast, the greater feast, that is still to come. For our Lord also promises that his return will be like a great wedding feast that will not end. Just as he shared table fellowship with the wedding party at Cana, so will he have fellowship again with us on the last day in his flesh at the dawn of a new creation. St. John, who recorded for us what he witnessed the day that the Lord's glory was manifest at the wedding at Cana, also shares with us This greater feast shown to us in the book of Revelation. It's here in the 19th chapter that he describes what this glorious image, this wedding feast, is going to look like. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. 
it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is at this feast that we see the Christ, the Lamb of God, not in humility as a wedding guest, but as the groom himself, as the host presiding over this great marriage feast. And for his bride, he takes the church, whom he has redeemed by the all-availing sacrifice of his body and blood, given and shed for us at the cross having made satisfaction for her by means of his suffering and death, he now seats her in glory in the heavenly banquet hall with himself for this most blessed feast. A feast of which the uh, prophet Isaiah foretold. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And so, dear brothers and sisters, at this blessed epiphany, as our Lord reveals himself to us again in word and sacrament, we all together await the revealing of that greater feast still to come. Until that day, you, the church, the very bride of Christ, you receive his altar call. You hear his voice as he summons you again to his table. Come to him, as he calls, in the fellowship of the saints both in heaven and on earth, and feast together in the presence of this glory which is made manifest in your seeing and hearing. Eat and drink of the good portion which has been set aside for you in this supper. Taste and see, and be satisfied unto your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. May the peace of God, which far surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in the same Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.